I'm okay. It feels like a deeply emasculating to have a, like a, a, a milk crate there. Is that terrible to say? Uh, thank you, Matt. And you know, I just want to say thank you, thank you, Matt, and to the committee that puts this on. Uh, this is one of these acts of grace. Like, there's no reason this has to exist. Uh, it could go away tomorrow, and that would be sad, but it, it's, it's just, yeah, it's unnecessary and gloriously unnecessary, and so that's why I think it works so well and why it's so much fun every year. And to be in this new spot, um, which feels a little like a movie set, but like a little also... Um, like the perfect place for this, like the place we've been waiting for. So, and, and with the, the cool stained glass, who is in, who is in charge of that? Well, we, my wife and I were just talking about how, how just perfect that is. So um, it feels, the, the homemade aesthetic feels like Mockingbird. And so thank you, Matt. Thank you, all of you who are here. I really, really appreciate it. And it's especially exciting for me because I don't know how many years we've done this, Matt. Was it not? eight years, and I've never gotten to, tra I've always had to travel alone because of the age my kids are at. But this is the first year that my wife is here, so if you haven't met her, where is Kate? She's over there. And I say that for a number of reasons, because I've always, I've always got this like, <laughs> not a hidden credit card, but a hidden like community. <laughs> In, in Tyler, and all these people that I know. So this is it. It's above board, sort of. So, um, but I also think it's, it's great to have her here because, you know, uh, the people sort of ask sort of where, where the material comes from that we use on the mocking cast or where the, on, the, on the website or in sermons and stuff like that. And a great deal of it comes from my wife whose antenna for stuff that's good and of, um, you know, of potential traction when it comes to the themes that, uh, that, that resonate with me. Her, her, no one has better antenna. And one of the things, so on our way here, she had me listen to this podcast called Dead Eyes. Do you know this podcast called Dead Eyes? It's hosted by a guy named Connor Radcliffe. He's an actor and a sort of a semi-comedian who <laughs> 20 years ago was cast in Band of Brothers, the HBO show about World War II. And he went and he, he, he did the rehearsal, he flew him to France or wherever it was being filmed, and he, he went through the whole thing, and then Tom Hanks saw the footage of him and fired him. And he fired him for having, quote unquote, dead eyes. And so this is three seasons of a podcast of him saying, it's the story of one man who was fired 20 years ago by Tom Hanks for having dead eyes. It's one man's quest to figure out what on earth that even means to have dead eyes. And over time, what happens is he, he basically interviews all these people in show business who give a litany of rejections that they've received that are equally puzzling, arbitrary, but deeply scarring. <laughs> And, um, and so it's this wonderful podcast that's it, it kind of become a lightning rod of what I'm going to talk about today, Low Anthropology, where there's this communion of failure and rejection that happens. And all of these, he has a lot of 
some well-known people, some very non-well-known people talk about the many defeats that they've suffered, and their personalities just come alive. And so he had the writer-director Judd Apatow, you know Judd Apatow? He uh, is behind uh, Knocked Up and, and Freaks and Geeks and a lot of the comedies, uh, The Big Sick, all of these things that, we've, that have become part of our cultural uh, you know, the air we breathe, uh, he's responsible for a lot of it. But Judd got on there and told the, what, what was, to me, one of the best stories of rejection that I've ever heard. He says that about, I think it was like 25, 30 years ago, he was being, there, there was a project that Jim Henson was putting together. Jim Henson, Kermit the Frog, was putting together of a bunch of comedians who would drive across country I don't know if it was like an early sort of reality TV show, some, but, but Judd uh, volunteered for this thing, and he, he thought he'd, or he auditioned for it, and he thought he'd auditioned well, um, and then uh, he got a call saying that, listen, Jim saw the footage, and he really uh, loves your ideas, and he wants to buy your ideas for the show, but he doesn't want you to be cast in it <laughs> His comment was, you quote-unquote, lack warmth. <laughs> Lacking warmth. And so Judd says, listen, the man who taught me to read, with whom I'd spent more time than with my own parents because of Sesame Street, told me I lack warmth. <laughs> and then Jim Henson goes and dies a month later. So he says, so this verdict is locked in. <laughs> the deepest part of my soul that I lack warmth. And it's the reason he never pursued um, acting, only he just remained a sort of a writer and director. But he, he says it's the, I mean, if he ever wants to endear himself to a crowd, he tells this story of how Jim Henson, so you have Tom Hanks and Jim Henson, basically the two nicest men in Hollywood from what the kind of American treasure type guys. I saw we've got a, we've got a Mr. Rogers uh, t-shirt back there, sort of feels like the third uh, spoke in that wheel. And to get a, a profound rejection from those guys, uh, is, is, a, is a hard thing. And yet, what you have in this podcast, which has grown enormously popular, is you have people flocking to it because it is not just a tale of sort of vague vulnerability or, you know, uh, failure. It's very specific, and it is about people whose lives have been more defined by stories like that than their many successes. And in fact, what you realize is that their successes, Judd has, you know, has, has, has made so much money in the careers of so many people, and when you start talking about accomplishments, you start ranking, and there's a ladder that, that develops, and all of a sudden, well, where am I on the comedy ladder? There's, you know, who's, who's higher than me? Who's the great American genius comedically? Um, the achievements, as as funny and as sort of wonderful as like something like Freaks and Geeks is, it has a way of creating a hierarchy. But then the story of failure and rejection immediately creates communion, laughter, compassion, and, uh, and connection. And in fact, he says that in, in both of these guys, in terms of when, when Judd is in the position of auditioning actors, he gives them an extra chance every time because he knows that the first time, he said, why don't you try it twice? 
because the first time is always uh, going, they're going to be so nervous. And so it's, it's failure that has been the gateway to his kindness. And I think that that is, uh, that's, so that's one of the bridges I want to talk about. My talk today is called uh, Looking for Bridges in a World of Ladders. And uh, i having a little trouble with this. Um, the other one I want to mention, and or the, there's two more, and the second one is um, regret. Now, some people who are in Dallas, I'm a little self-conscious that you guys have heard me talk about this before, but there's another podcast that my wife sent me. That, uh, it was a, like the number one on Apple, and it was Maya Shankar uh, interviewing Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink, the business expert and leadership consultant guy who writes popular books that are sort of pop psychology books, and some of them are good, some of them, you know, he's, he's interesting. Um, and he wrote a book called The Power of Regret. And in order to write this book, he, um, he did what, is, what he claims is the largest survey of regret ever undertaken in American history. And so he got 22,000 people to catalog their regrets through a website. And what he found was apparently 82% of people who, who, who logged on said that yes, there are things about their lives that they regret, meaning stuff that they directly had agency or power over that they would do differently if they could have. And then there were 17% of people who said, no, they don't struggle with regret. And then they went on to list all of the things that they regret. <laughs> and then there's 1% of people which, who I guess are just psychopaths. And he was, it, was, it was so interesting. He'd stumbled into an area of universal experience. And in a world in which we have no common ground, as we're told, and there's different facts people are using, and, and uh, no one can talk to each other, the fact that he, he, he found a sort of a, a universal ground of experience, of sympathy that could resonate across aisles and across party lines, and just across generations, was very interesting. You know what he did find, though? He says, in, their tw in, in your 20s, you regret action and inaction in equal measure, and by the time you're in your 40s or 50s, which one do you regret more? Inaction, by a factor of eight to one. Like, so actions, things you've, you've done wrong that you wish you had done differently, you can sort of redress in some way, you can ask for forgiveness, you can reconcile potentially, but inaction, it just sits on your chest. And it's a very interesting thing, but Shankar asked him, she said, you know, you've been, um, completely occupied and living in a world of regret. And he's heard, you know, the most heart-wrenching stories of regret you could possibly imagine. And um, are you depressed? Are you discouraged? Are you okay? And he said, you know, people ask me that all the time. And the truth is, I feel less alone than I did before I undertook this but not just less alone myself, I feel more connected to people of all backgrounds and times and places and my fellow humans. I have more love and sympathy for people after marinating in their regrets. And so again, you have an area, and like uh, I love, Tish last night was talking about the avoidance of negative feelings. Regret apparently is the, either the first or second most expressed negative emotion that we have. 
I don't know how you measure those things, but someone measured them. And no one wants to talk about, regret is not something that's like a conversation starter. We were joking about it as, as like a, a potential sort of, you know, icebreaker at a party, you know. So, <laughs> so why don't you tell me about your deepest regrets in life, you know? <laughs> well, I was, I bullied so-and-so when I was a kid. And, and yet, those, that's the ground on which we actually connect with each other. So you have regret being universal, and instead of it being this incredibly painful experience, while it is something that's unpleasant, it, it found, forms the foundation for connection, and in fact, sympathy and love. Maybe not in every case, but... So that's the, the, the second bridge that I've found, because I'm looking for bridges. I don't know about you, I find the acrimony, I find the blame, the cloud of blame under which we all live these days, uh, that kind of sort of antagonistic thing, I find it personally painful and draining and siphoning and it makes me want to run and hide. So you got regret and we got rejection. <laughs> Great. Um, then. Uh, there's, if you've, if you've read the introduction of the book, there's like a kind of an emblematic cartoon of, uh, that I, I punt to every time that, that is shaped a lot of the writing of this book. And it's a picture of a crowded city street. And you have um, young people and old people and men and women and people of all different backgrounds and they're all walking in different directions. And they look a little stressed out, frankly. But there's a thought bubbles going up from each of their head to the same thing. They're all thinking the same thing. You guys, what are they thinking? I, I said this and I told, uh, in, I was in the first talk I gave on this book outside of Charlottesville, I, I asked this question and someone said, they're all thinking WTF. <laughs> I was like, close, close. No, the caption is, all these people really seem to have it together and I still have no idea what's going on. Now, what, what was being described there is a sort of, there, people are going in different directions, different backgrounds, different experiences, yet they're united in their confusion and in their sense that they're the only one. Or you might even say that they're an imposter. This is imposter syndrome has become a buzzword in our world today, imposter syndrome. And as far as I can tell, everyone suffers from imposter syndrome. In fact, one of the great gifts of being in ministry for, it's coming on 20 years now, is that you, could, you, you know, you just know that anyone you're talking to, the only reason you think they have it totally together is because you don't know them that well. The classic thing, and I hear, I work with a lot of college students, and um, they say, you know, I, I'm the only one who doesn't belong in this program. Everyone else is, is passing. It just doesn't come naturally to me. What do I do, Dave? Or you hear, we, you know, our marriage is struggling, but everyone in church seems to be so in love and lovey-dovey. And you say, well, let me, you know, you know that no one's life is what it appears to be. And that it might not be equivalent, but there's some sense in which we all feel like imposters. So here we have three bridges, right? Aren't these great? These are the bridges of low anthropology, one of which is rejection, one of which is uh, imposter syndrome, and the other of which is regret. 
Now, I find in a world uh, that values strength and accomplishment, uh, the appearance of virtue, and um, or, or, or the right kind of vulnerability, I find this to be very heartening, in fact, because it, 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 I, want, I want more of what Daniel Pink talked about. I want to love other people more and judge them less because it doesn't feel good to resent the heck out of everyone you meet, you know? One of the things I, I said the, in, this, um, in, in, this, in this book is I say, a theologian might say that God has given everyone different gifts and abilities, yet similar weaknesses. This is one of the great insights of the Christian faith. The world runs after success and strength and perfection and finds the track only gets longer. The runners more spread out. The Christian considers weakness the location of grace and unity, not evidence of their absence. You might say then, we are separated by our virtues, but united in our distance from virtue. We are divided by the specifics of our political or aesthetic ideals, but united in the fact that we fall short of those ideals. We are separated by the career paths we've taken, but united by the ubiquity of regret, both professional and otherwise. We are separated by how much we've gained or accrued, but united in the experience, somewhere along the line, of loss and the fear of loss. We are separated by how we love, but united by our failure to love perfectly. We are stratified according to how we live, but re-democratized by the fact of death. So if you want to find common ground with someone, don't start with what they put on their resume. Start with what they leave off. Now, what does this have to do with anthropology? Uh, those of you who've read the book or heard me talk about it, again, I'm trying not to be too self-conscious about that, but Tish did it, so I can do it too, right? <laughs> she went first. Uh, I'm not using anthropology in the sense of, um, of like uh, cultural anthropology. And maybe you went to college and you heard about an anthropology course that was studying the, you know, the purchasing habits of uh, children in Puerto Rico or something like that. You know, that's, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about tribes in the outback of Australia. We're t I'm talking about the way that theologians and philosophers use the word anthropology, which is actually not as a highfalutin term. It's as a shorthand for your operating view of human nature. When you say the phrase, I'm only human, what does that mean? What is it that you think humans are capable of or incapable of? What are our liabilities? What are our potentials? What are, our, what are we good at? What do we tend not to be so good at? Now, anthropologies can be uh, conscious, and they could be like, well, I'm a Bardian who thinks of, you know, uh, but who also has a kind of a Marxist bent. You know, like you, you can have a sort of a consciously constructed view or I think people are great. And, you know, the only limitations are the limitations we put on ourselves. Or you can be a total cynic and I think, I think hell is other people, you know. You, you, could, you could be summing the, the Sartre thing. But everyone has an anthropology. Everyone has, can, it cannot be non-existent. And so the, what we think human beings are capable of and how we understand our humanity is, is enormously, uh, has a great bearing, I guess, on our happiness and our ability to function in the world because it creates expectations in our lives, in our relationships, in our jobs, 
in our politics, and especially in our spiritual lives. I believe that seeing people as they truly are as opposed to how we would have them be is a crucial ingredient in generating authentic compassion and lasting love. So then I chart, I try to chart anthropologies on a continuum of high to low. High being sort of more optimistic assumptions about human nature, sort of grandiose visions of moving towards total self-realization and transcendence, transcending our limitations, and a low anthropology, which is a more sober estimation of people who are, have many amazing qualities but are ultimately in need of help, help from one another and help ultimately from God. You can have a low anthropology and not believe in God, and you can have a high anthropology and believe fully in God, but the contention of this book is that Christianity doesn't make that much sense in the context of a high anthropology. So, uh, I, 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 I talk about as sort of by way of example, I, I look at graduation speeches, and because um, that's like ground zero for anthropologies, okay? And whether it be like a fourth grade graduation or a, or a graduation from college or something like that. And, uh, you know, I, I talk about Steve Jobs in 2005. He told Stanford graduates to, to what, is he, what did he say? He said, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow know what you truly want to become. Thank you, Steve. I gave this talk out in, out in L.A., and there was a woman in, in attendance who was actually, who graduated from Stanford in 2005 when that speech was given, and she said, yeah, most of us, like, we're so, it was, it was like 102 degrees, and we had no idea what was going on. Um, <laughs> so the, the murmurs of, like, yes, like, that, we, that was actually us saying, please get this over with. Like, <laughs> this is so boring. Um, and then, that's, that's actually a high anthropology. It's, it's, it's a, it's, it can be inspiring, especially to those people who've been told their entire lives that they're a worm or they're not capable of anything good. If you've got made it to graduation at Stanford, I don't think you're in that category, but it, it, possibly, because as far as I can tell, no one gets into Stanford University. Um, however, maybe there, there are. Then, but then I compare that with Anne Lamott the patron saint of low anthropology, the California hippie version. And she says this, she said this to a different group of graduates, she said, everyone is screwed up, broken, clingy, and scared. Even the people who seem to have it more or less together, they are much more like you than you would believe, so try not to compare your insides with their outsides. Now, the difference between what is, think about this, if, if, you're, if, you're, if my 10-year-old son came back from school and said, Dad, my teacher today told me to believe in my dreams and my intuitions that I need to have the courage to follow what I need to do, I would say, that's awesome, son. I believe you, now please take your finger out of your nose, but I believe you. <laughs> that is awesome, you're an amazing child. <laughs> no more snacks. And the, <laughs> But if he came back and said, guess what I learned today, Dad? I learned that everybody is terrified and clingy and scared and screwed up. And I shouldn't compare my insides with other people's outsides. I would say, well, um, are you okay? You know? <laughs> Did you have a bad day? Maybe your blood sugar has dropped too much. Um, don't be so hard on yourself. 
but spoke, I could just tell when I threw out these two anthropologies, and obviously it's a self-selecting crowd, but um, the emotional response you had was different. The emotional response to the inspiring Steve Jobs, let's go out there and enslave the entire human race to their phones kind of anthropology. Like that sounded, oh, that's great. That's the sort of thing you need to hear when you're 22. But hey, now I'm 43 and I don't always like my intuitions, frankly. And how come my siblings seem to get so much better sense and natural, uh, you know, reasonable direction than I did, you know? And then you hear Anne Lamott's thing and you think, oh my gosh, I feel seen. What a relief. My, my shoulders are unknotting as we speak. I'm not the only one. That is the difference between a high anthropology and a low anthropology. And this is the great irony of a low anthropology, that what sounds insulting is actually liberating, and what sounds liberating at first is actually oppressive and embittering. And if you want, but it's, it's, it's more than that. I think that the uh, low anthropology is a much more reliable bridge uh, to loving other people. It may not be always successful, but it has a much better track record than high anthropology. If you believe people are basically rational creatures making wise decisions and just need to be told what to do, you will very soon come to hate them. <laughs> ask any pastor, <laughs> ask any parent. It turns out that we are emotional creatures who have a jumble of different desires, what I call doubleness, which is the Roman seven experience of the world. We need more than just information. We have an agency problem as well as an information problem. And if you're going to love me, you need to understand me, you need to know like what Augustine says, you need to know where my desires are at, not where my thoughts are at, you know? And uh, that is sort of, that is actually a low anthropology because it says all this stuff you th you, that, that you think is so important about yourself, you will betray it in a heartbeat for love. <laughs> or out of desire. And the people are, are knotted. We're all sorts of, uh, we're conflicted. And that we're also limited. That we have um, very hard limits placed upon us by nature that we are, uh, there, there's a God and, and we're, not, we're, not, we're not him. <laughs> you know, we're creatures. So you might say that um, uh, we cannot know it all, we cannot do it all, we cannot care about it all for the simple fact that we are finite human beings, that we are bound by time. I can't be in two places at once, despite what my son's soccer coaches seem to think, <laughs> you know? I, <laughs> I need eight hours of sleep a night, despite what Silicon Valley thinks. You know, I, uh, these are limitations. Um, I need food. I need barbecue. <laughs> um, so in that sense, uh, what sometimes when people hear about low anthropology, and, and by the way, the third, the third I've just outlined two of the pillars of a low anthropology. The third, so it's limitation and doubleness. The third one is what I call self-centeredness, which is simply sin. 
um, which is the strain in human nature that seems to uh, bias us against flourishing. Uh, there's all sorts of ways to understand sin. Rebellion from God is, is, the, is the formal definition, I think, but um, sin, if you don't understand that there is a dark side to human nature, again, you will be baffled by other people, baffled by history, and baffled by yourself, to say nothing of your children. There is a dark side, and it's not the only thing, but it's there. Um, so... Uh, Low anthropology is my attempt to cut through all the noise of a high anthropology, but to do so with hope. You see, the, the two main uh, besetting factors that, wrote, that caused me to write this book, and I'm about to open this up for questions and comments, because that's been the much more fun part of this whole tour thing, but is the two things are burnout and loneliness. Um, it, you know, when, when seculosity came about, I was thinking about the word enough, and everyone was talking about enoughness. It, it, times have shifted just a little bit, and everyone still feels like they're not enough, but the, you, you hear about um, everyone feeling burned out. You heard about this before the pandemic, and you heard about it after the pandemic. Now it's taken on a slightly different form. Everyone talks about fatigue, right? I've got compassion fatigue. I've got attention fatigue. It's the same thing, it, the sense that life is demanding more of us than we can possibly deliver. As uh, far as I can tell, uh, women with young children are burned out, uh, middle school boys are burned out, um, retired 70-year-old men are burned out. I don't know what they're burned out of, but they're burned out of something. <laughs> they're, uh, men in their 40s are burned out. Everyone is, that I know is, is burned out. And it's not just that they're exhausted, it's that you sort of feel like a kind of a paralysis and a, and a, and a betrayal and a, almost like a, a despair. Um, that is indicative of, of a culture of high anthropology, a culture that we, that has not been necessarily foisted upon us, but that we are active participants in. But that we, and our employers have, have, employers have, have embraced. So, so burnout is symptomatic of a very high anthropology. Uh, the other thing is loneliness, and you read uh, about the escalating rates of loneliness in this country, which are truly tragic and correlate directly to deaths of despair. Now, I don't want to say that deaths of despair, meaning deaths related to self-harm, addiction, suicide, etc. Um, I don't mean to suggest that there's ever one single cause of loneliness, but um, certainly a high anthropology doesn't help, because people only feel known when they're known for their, they, they, that all of them is known. No one feels known when their profile gets liked because we know that that's not us. It's a part of us. We're not necessarily lying, but there's just things you leave out, either by necessity or by intention. I don't know. But if, you can, if there's a complete intolerance of actual weakness, then no one will ever feel loved. It's just loneliness will increase to the extent that there's no, um, and I think when you read about the, the rates of loneliness and of course suicide, it's particularly pronounced among, among men where I think there's a, a higher or deeper intolerance of any kind of chinks in the armor. Um, and yet, no one throughout history has ever wanted to parade their true failures in front of other people. You know, I can talk to you about Regrets and Daniel Pink, it's funny, you know, when he talks about his regrets, he's like, well, my main regret in life is that I watched other kids get bullied on the playground 
and I didn't do anything about it. And that's a real regret, but it's also a damn acceptable regret, you know? <laughs> what about sin? I, I'm, I'll tell you what my regret is. My younger brother, Simeon, who has had great intuition for whatever reason in life, he's now a professor of theology at Cambridge University, and he wrote his college essay on how I bullied the hell out of him <laughs> when we lived in Germany. And not just, not just, I didn't just say some mean things. I punched him, I gave him bruises, I told him he was, the, you know, not worth, you know, anyone ever talking to, you know, it was my own insecurities projected onto him, but whatever. It was scarring, but it was also so sympathy-inducing that he got into Harvard. <laughs> right? So, anyways, where was I? Um, he's a... He's, he's, yeah, he's a great kid. Um, <laughs> I, I believe that if you want to find a bridge in a world full of ladders, you, it, it may not, you may not always find it uh, on a, on a, in terms of uh, the less savory things, but it's much more likely to find it when it comes to stories of rejection, failure, sin, uh, you know, um, and, um, and regret than you are according to sort of your, your, your fondest accomplishments. So that's what this book is about. And it's trying to paint a picture of people that's not, you know, the, the pushback you get is, is this a shame-inducing book um, about how people, is this, someone said, David, did you just write, you suck the book? <laughs> no, I didn't write, you suck the book, though, you know. A little bit of that might be okay sometimes. You know, we've got, as, 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 as Tish talked about yesterday, we've got such an intolerance and aversion to feeling anything negative that I feel we suffer under the tyranny of positivity such that, you know, you can only have, you know, everything gets pathologized. If, uh, and there are pathologies, but the only permitted language of talking about anything bad that's ever happened to you is the language of like pathology and trauma and stuff like that. When, when, it, when, when the truth is like life is just full of loss and it's difficult and it's hard uh, and, and we don't need to search for suffering, it will come to us. Uh, I, I think it's not actually a counsel of despair. What's a counsel of despair uh, is the idea that you can do it all, know it all, care about it all, uh, you just haven't pulled it off yet. I think that's what births true despair. I think a low anthropology sets us up not only to look for help from others, from other people, Yes, we all have incredible gifts, but we also all have blind spots such that in order to do great things in the world, I need to draw in as many people as possible. This is the whole scientific method is based on this idea. Francis Bacon thought that the human reason is fallen, and therefore if we were to make any progress in life, he was a Calvinist, if we make any progress in life, we need to do it as slowly and deliberately as humanly possible, asking as many people as we can possibly find to confirm and reconfirm our findings. That understanding of actual progress is based in a low anthropology, not a high one. Um, and I find that to be true, actually, emotionally as well. 
But ultimately, this is a picture of human beings who uh, need sympathy, who need understanding, and ultimately need forgiveness. And really, what I'm talking about is we need God. So the book, as I understand it, is an argument as best I can make for, a, for not only the, why, why belief in God would be compelling as well as urgent for a world and a race that is simply a species that is just drowning in high anthropology. It's, a, it's, a, it's, what, it's what I see as the necessary gateway to mercy and faith. I often think that what, when I read the New Testament, I feel like God is after faith. Like, how, did, how, does, how is faith created? Uh, the sort of faith that mumbles <laughs> forgiveness through a ventilator, you know? That's actually an act of, of faith. And if that's what God is after, well, then I think that, the, that it, it travels on the rails of a low anthropology. I also think that love travels on the rails of a low anthropology. Again, no one feels known, no one feels loved. We've had to do so many weddings this year in Charlottesville, which is like a huge wedding destination because it's like neutral ground between north and south or something like that. I, I don't quite understand. <laughs> and we have, a lot of, um, we have a lot of vineyards, which are really, this is what, it's, it's a wedding venue, it's not a vineyard, trust me, don't, don't drink that wine. The, the, uh, and you go to these things, and I go to them all the time, and I just hear wedding toast after wedding toast that are not full of resume virtues. It's, none, it's never that. It's always like, yes, she's beautiful. Yes, he's dashing. Yes, they're successful. Yes, they're incredible. We all know that. But let me tell you about what she's like in her sweatpants on a Tuesday night when she's watching reality, when cramming reality TV and eating ice cream straight from the thing, you know? <laughs> or when I'm, 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 she's crying from a breakup, or let me tell you about what he's like when he's had one too many and the police are nearby, you know? <laughs> that's, that's how our bond, how love was actually formed, and it doesn't mean that whatever he said to the police was somehow excusable, but it does mean that he feels, when I say I love you and I'll stick with you, he believes it because I didn't run away that night, you know, in 2003. I don't know what it was. So that's low anthropology, and I believe, uh, I will just say that Christianity, in my experience, doesn't make much sense outside of the context of a low anthropology. I think that, as Jason said, Jesus himself was the one, as his mission statement, saying that it is the sick that need a doctor. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And that, to me, is not just whistling Dixie. I think that that's... Um, the doorway into a relationship with God that is life-giving and transformative and exciting where you want to have the quiet time rather than feel like you have to have the quiet time. Um, and one of the things the book does trace that my, my wife told me I should talk about is the way that when high anthropology gets into religion, it just ruins people's lives. It just creates refugees and atheists. That's what, that's what uh, a theology of glory is, a theology of high anthropology. It's when, when basically I, I become a Christian because I, I need forgiveness 
and I need a second chance, and I need a third chance, and I, 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 I want my past wiped away in some way that I can actually believe that's not just generated within. I want to hear that, 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 that not only there's a God, but God is benevolent and, and actually will welcome me. And then you get in, and you think, oh, that's incredible. And then slowly, implicitly, not even intentionally all the time, but a new set, a new ladder emerges. You got there on a bridge, and then there's a new ladder, and you think to yourself, after a while, after years of it, you're like, you say, why am I on another ladder? And you say, this, maybe this whole thing, that's what Tish was talking about last night, maybe this whole thing is just another construct, because humans are really good at making ladders, and we're really terrible at making bridges, at least if Charlottesville, Virginia is concerned, where our bridges have been under construction for about eight years now. <laughs> Civic mismanagement at its absolute finest. So, uh, I think that, that uh, and any time I hear, you know, I'm surrounded by the cloud of sort of deconstruction and, and uh, people sort of have had enough. And whenever you hear, I've had enough, I can't keep it up anymore. Um, that means someone was on a treadmill, someone was on a ladder, and instead of the church being the place to run to with your shame and failure, the place to fall apart, it is, it is, uh, it has become a place of new moral burden. And it hasn't always, it's not always in some sinister plot, we are all complicit in it, uh, but this is why in my tradition, every single week we come in and what you hear is that this is the God from whom all desires are known and from, from whom no secrets are hid. And then you confess the sin week in, week out. You don't just like do it once. You, you hear every time about the things I have done and left undone. I've not followed you uh, with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. And then in that, you are not left in that place, but you are then proclaimed. You, uh, you, are, you, are, you are preached to, you are given the love of God for sinners the absolution and the promise of the resurrection. And in that place of truth and grace, we see transformation, we see uh, acts of charity and love, of uh, spontaneous evangelism, the type that will make any high anthropologist blush. <laughs>